Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hello, everyone. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Baylog. Welcome to another episode of 20 Minute Bible Studies. We speak to many interesting people, some who believe strange doctrines. One of the more interesting ones that I've come across recently are those who deny the truth of the Trinity. They usually begin by stating that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And they're surprised when I reply, yes, that's true. So what? Exactly. Trinity is just a theological word. Many theological words don't actually appear in the Bible. For instance, the word divinity isn't in the Bible, yet we don't reject the concept of God. In fact, the word Bible doesn't even appear in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a silly point, but the belief underlying it should be taken seriously, I think. It seems that enough people reject the Trinity that there's a name for this, non-Trinitarianism. So to help those who may encounter this misguided belief, we put together today's lesson. As always, let's begin by listening to the Word of God. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Okay, so the doctrine we're going to examine today, as the famous hymn puts it, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. These three persons are in view in many, many places throughout the Bible. The baptism of Jesus, which we just heard, is a prime example. Yeah, the context is that Jesus arrives in Galilee, where John the baptizer, which was his cousin and also his version of Elijah, has been baptizing Israel. He was preparing the way for him, the Messiah. Then Jesus asks John to baptize him. Of course, John is taken aback and tries to stop Jesus. And he says in Matthew 3.14, I have need to be baptized by you. How is it that you come to me for baptism? And Jesus answers in verse 15, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then come the verses we heard, Matthew three sixteen and 17, where God the Son comes up from the water, God the Spirit descends as a dove and lands on God the Son, and God the Father speaks his approval from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. By the way, God the Father would speak these same words again from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. You know, Jordan, an interesting fact about these verses, these verses is that the publishers who have organized the printing of red-letter Bibles obviously believed in the Trinity. 
You know, if you own or read from a red letter Bible, you'll notice in these verses that when God the Father speaks, his words are actually in black ink. But then when Jesus speaks, it's in red ink. Another place the Trinity appears clearly in Scripture is during the Great Commission. Now we see in Matthew 28, 19, that it reads, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This verse is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's promised by the Father, but then sent by the Son. And it's obviously a cornerstone verse for Trinitarians to hang their hat on. Okay, so those are two of the most powerful scriptural proofs of the Trinity. Now, some argue that the concept of the Trinity is illegitimate because it didn't come about until the 4th century. I've heard that argument a couple of times. But that's just when it was formalized as official church doctrine. The doctrine actually goes back to the early church fathers, and the only reason it wasn't quote-unquote official back then is because there were still many teaching false doctrines, such as Jesus wasn't God, he wasn't physical, and things like that. In my conversations, I haven't encountered anyone who denies the Trinity who also believes that Jesus isn't God. They all seem to believe that Jesus is God. It's the Holy Spirit as God they, they tend to dispute. But before we get into the divinity of the Holy Spirit, Andy, could you please quickly share a verse or two that proves Jesus is God? Sure, Jordan. So go-to verses would be in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So these verses are straightforward and should be taken literal by any reader. Another verse, which I call sneaky because they are often overlooked, is Genesis 1.26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And of course, this verse is read by Jews and Christians alike and shows an obvious presence of God the Father with someone else who looks like him. When described in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, Jesus is described like this. It reads, God, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You see that? It's like a perfect parallel. So we see Jesus and the Father are different beings, but they have the same attributes. Right. Those are great verses, Andy. Okay, so Jesus is God, and of course, the Father is God. And this sort of creates a problem for those who deny the Trinity. Here's why. The first scriptural argument they tend to cite is the first line of the Shema, the most important prayer in Judaism. And you can find that in Deuteronomy 6.4 as one of the places which simply says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the beginning of the Shema. So, you know, the problem is that citing that verse is sort of a logical trap for those who deny the Trinity, and they don't see it at first. You know, their simplistic argument tends to be, see, the Bible says that God is one. Therefore, he cannot be three, by which they mean to imply that the doctrine of the Trinity contradicts Scripture. 
But let's go ahead and accept the premise. If the Shema means God is singular, my very next question for them is, but don't you believe that Jesus is God? And as I said earlier, and as you showed with Scripture, Andy, he clearly is, and they believe that. So then I asked them, doesn't that mean God is at least two, the Father and the Son? If God is singular and therefore cannot be three, then how can he be two? Yeah, I mean, great point, Jordan. Of course, their error is misunderstanding the word one in the Shema. It clearly cannot mean one, as in singular. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is plural. The beginning of the Bible, going back to Genesis 1, as I read earlier in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Now, this verse reflects a Hebrew name for God, and the word is Elohim, which is a plural word. The singular form of that would be Eli. I'm sure many of us remember Jesus saying on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he, it was God the Son speaking directly to God the Father. But here we see the word that God chose in Genesis is the word Elohim. It's a plural word. And we know this to be true because of John 1.1, 1, 1, which again was read, which says that Jesus was in the beginning with God. In fact, the Shema in Deuteronomy literally says, Jehovah is Elohim. Jehovah is one. Or Jehovah is the plural word for God. Jehovah is one God. Now, this makes no sense, of course, unless you understand that the word one simply means alone, as in apart, distinct, unique, or sanctified, or set apart, or different from anything else, and above all, and separate from all, not singular in the numerical sense. So now let's see the plurality of God at the end of the Bible, and that's Revelation chapter 21. Yes, Andy, I'll go ahead and read Revelation 21, verses 10, and then 22 to 23. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now skipping to verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the Lamb. So here we see the distant future, beyond even Christ's thousand-year reign, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, and both God the Father and God the Son, aka the Lamb, will rule together. Once again, the plurality of God is all throughout the Bible, from the beginning even till the end. Okay, so we have just one matter left to resolve then, and that is, now that we know the divinity of the Father and the Son are clear in the Scriptures, and that the Shema cannot mean God is singular, because He is plural throughout the Bible, and He is at least two, the question becomes, why did it become church doctrine that He is three? Why do we believe the Holy Spirit is God? Okay, Jordan, so there are a few key verses that we can look at. The most emphatic, I'd say, was in Acts chapter 5 during the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So I'll just quickly summarize for our listeners who maybe haven't read that yet, but I do recommend you doing it. So this is a story that occurs at the very beginning of the early church, and we've got Peter here who's a leader of the movement, the church movement at the time. So what they were doing is they were working as a community. You had the rich and poor believers, Christians, who are gathering together 
and they were supplying for each other's needs. And how they would do that is those who did have some land or some property or something of value, they promised to Peter and together in prayer that they would sell their belongings and they would take all the funds and put it into a kitty so that everyone, all Christians, can kind of eat out of the same pot, if you will. So what we see here, though, is Ananias and Sapphira, they were husband and wife. They did have some land, I'm assuming some farmland that they sold. But the story tells us is that they held back a portion of it for their own benefit. They kind of had like a little nest egg that they hid, and they, and they didn't tell Peter about it. So Peter calls them, kind of like a courtroom scene, and brings them before them. And it, it starts with Ananias first, who's the, who's the husband. And he says, hey, look, and I'm summarizing here. Did you kind of hold back some money here? And Ananias just kind of sat there like, you know, speechless. But what we see is that the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit is in that room and actually takes the life of Ananias. And Peter's like, why would you promise something like that to God and then not fulfill your promise? So because of that, God allowed his life to be taken. And then later, his wife, who was in on this, Sapphira, came in, called in by Peter, and she was asked the same question, why did you hold back some of the money that you promised? Why would you even promise if you were going to lie? So she sat there and said, you know, oh my goodness. And of course, again, we see a scene where the Holy Spirit there takes her life as well. So that's the story here of Ananias and Sapphira. And the key verses for our purposes are in Acts 5, 3, and 4. So, Jordan, could you read that for our listeners, please? Sure. And it's critical to pay attention carefully to the words. So it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. There you go. So Peter clearly states that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, which means he lied to God. So in Peter's eyes, the Holy Spirit was part of the Trinity. He equates the Holy Spirit with God. Yeah, I think it's also important to step back, Andy, and look at what the whole Bible is saying, what it teaches us about the forms in which God has dwelled on earth. You know, in the beginning, God the Father was on the earth. He walked in the Garden of Eden, for example. That's Genesis 3.8. He made a covenant with Abraham. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush and so on. Later, God became flesh and dwelt among us in the form of the Son. That's John 1, 1 and 14, which we heard earlier. This was the Word, you know, God the Son. And the Son represented God on earth for 33 years until he was crucified, rose again, and ascended. Right before he left the earth, he told his disciples that God the Father would send a new form, the Helper, John 14, 16. This was God the Holy Spirit. In the future, the Holy Spirit will leave the earth when the church is raptured. Then at the second coming, God the Son will return to rule and reign for a thousand years. After that, God the Father will return to rule with God the Son over a new heaven and a new earth. We also heard that today. So we see God continuously present on earth throughout time. There's only one time, in fact, when some form of God in one of these three forms will not be present on earth, and this will be during the Great Tribulation and will lead to a literal hell on earth. No matter how bad things may seem at times now, we are not experiencing hell on earth, so God must still be present. 
And there are only three known forms of God, or three spoken of in the Bible, as we have just discussed. Our Father, who art in heaven, according to the model prayer, Matthew 6, 9. His Son, who is also in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, according to Ephesians 1, 20. And the Holy Spirit, who is presently on earth, because he is dwelling within us, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16. You know, Jordan, there actually were people in history who believed in binatarianism, or the idea that God is binary. They taught that the Father and the Word were co-equal, but not the Holy Spirit, because he's not a person, but rather a power. What scriptural evidence do we have in the Bible that this is wrong? Yeah, that's a good question, Andy. You know, there are many different things, little clues throughout the Bible. You know, for one, the Holy Spirit is called he and not it. So that gives him a, a personage right off the bat based on the pronouns used. And, you know, we also see many um, human-like qualities attributed to the Holy Spirit. So like a person, he can be grieved, and that's Ephesians 4.30. Uh, he speaks and he commands. We see that in Acts 10.19, John 16.13, and Acts 8.29. He also guides, that's Romans 8, 14. He comforts and he teaches, John 14, 26, and John 16, 13. And the scriptures also clearly state that the Spirit is co-equal with God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he says it twice, the Lord is the Spirit, the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. So, you know, this binatarian or binatarian idea, which uh, seems to have gone out of uh, fashion, it was, a, it was an older um, belief system, as you, as you described, that he's a uh, power, not a person, is obviously contradicted by all these attributes that the Bible gives to him as a, a third person, a personage of the Trinity. You know, again, I, I always like to remember the, the words of that old hymn, you know, God in three persons, that, that, it, that really is a great definition, a uh, very clear and specific definition of what the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's one of the three persons of God. You know, Jordan, it also, you remind me of a lesson that we did many years ago about the keys of three. And it's important to understand that, you know, three is a very important number to God. Um, and we're talking about the Trinity. So the same way, you know, we can kind of play, you know, I hate to say it this way, but devil's advocate, because the same way that there's a holy Trinity, the Bible clearly teaches that there's an also an evil Trinity, right? Because right? we see in Revelation that there's, you know, the Satan who is, you know, the opposite, the polar opposite of God the Father. And then we see the Antichrist, who's the opposite of Jesus Christ. And then we see the beast, which is the opposite of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, you can't take away one and not the other and not kind of make them, you know, equal parts. So, in other words, three, three is key. You know, like even our makeup as humans, you know, we have three critical parts that make us up. It's, it's the, the, the body itself. It's the soul and also the spirit. So you'll see that, you know, three is a very popular and important number to God. And obviously, he's made up of, of three equal parts. Yeah, and they've done a few lessons on that topic, the key of three in man. One, one would be called uh, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. If someone wants to go to our archives and look it up, 
but we have several lessons that we've done. You can visit our podcast archives or go to the website to, to find out more about that. Okay, to summarize today's lesson, all of the following statements are scripturally correct. God is one. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. If you believe these statements are true, then you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, whether you like to call it that or not. God is one, but then also three at the same time. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. That's the truth of the Bible. And that is our lesson. Until next time, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you all. Thank you so much for your support. Finally, we also like to take time at the end of the show to promote other ministries whose missions we support. You've heard us talk about Friends of Israel, Got Questions, and the Blue Letter Bible. This week, we'd like to do something a little different and tell you about a regional ministry that benefits children who have suffered significant trauma from abuse and neglect. The ministry is the Louisiana Methodist Children's Home. If you have a heart for helping children, who are in desperate need of God's love, then this is the ministry for you. As Jesus taught us, whatever we do to the least of those among us, we have done to him. That's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. On October 5th, the Children's Home will hold its only major fundraising event of the year with all proceeds benefiting these children. We know they would be grateful for any support that you can provide. To find out more, visit them online at lumcfs.org. That's L-U-M, as in Louisiana United Methodist, then C-F-S, as in Children Family Services, dot O-R-G. L-U-M-C-F-S dot org. Or call 985-860-5247. That's 985-860-5247. Thank you and God bless. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. of the kingdom incorporated.